What would it take for you, this is a little thought experiment, what would it take for you to turn your back on everything you've ever known? Let's say to turn your back on your faith, your family, and your country, and to go to a new country, to take on a new faith, to find a new family. A big ask, uh, it'd have to be something cataclysmic, surely, for many of us. Some of us might think, oh, that sounds like an escape from the trials and the sufferings and the difficulty that I face today. Maybe that's what, it sounds like a, a, an attractive idea. But there's something in us that knows that we can't do that. At least, in, in some sense, it's something that we can't just go and do because we have, we have loyalties to one another. We have loyalties to our country, to our kin, to that's our people. We have loyalties to those we love. And as those among us here, many of us who are Christians know, we have a deep loyalty to our God. Loyalties are something that something we don't really talk about much these days. In fact, uh, loyalty is probably seen as old-fashioned maybe these days. You, there are some loyalties that we have that just seem to stick with us you know perhaps you love your 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 football team as the one that always comes last but you still stick with them because you're loyal to them so we do see loyalties that that stick with people come hell or high water but other loyalties they seem to be on the way out we seem very quick to change depending on what feels like the right thing to do at the moment what we're feeling, what, we're, uh, what we like, what's comfortable to us. We will be quick to change loyalties to suit ourselves. When we look at the Old Testament, loyalty is probably one of the best words to use to describe faith in the Old Testament. Because we as Christians, we're used to talking about faith, we're used to talking about believing in Jesus, we're used to talking about trusting Jesus. But one of the things, ways that we, one of those elements that we that we sometimes leave out is loyalty to Jesus. And so when you go back and you look in the Old Testament, you see faith, but faith expressed as loyalty. And that's what we're looking at here, a story about loyalty in the story of Ruth. And fun fact, the, the name Caleb, we have a Caleb here. The name Caleb means dog. But you know why it means dog? Well, it, it actually means loyalty, but it's literally dog because Caleb, the Caleb of the, of the Scriptures, was loyal. He was loyal like a man's best friend, like a dog. So, loyalty. We've been in, in Ruth, and, and, and uh, Adam just gave a little snippet before about what we covered last week, but let me just give you, flesh that out a little bit more. We've got, we've got Naomi's family. So Elimelech, Naomi, and her, their two sons, they fled Israel. And this was happening during the time of the Judges. So if you read the book in front of Ruth in the Bible, Judges, you get the story about what was going on around that area at the time. So, the, so one of the things that God had promised Israel as they went into the land is, if you are not faithful, if you are not loyal, then I will send judgments on you. And one of those judgments was famine. So when we read in, in Ruth, there was famine in the land, we instantly make a connection. Ah, God's judgment on the land because of their disloyalty. 
So during this time, Elimelech, Naomi, there's famine, so they head off to Moab where they find, hear that there's food. The, lo- the two boys marry local girls, uh, Orpah and Ruth, and then all the men died. So Elimelech died first and then the two sons died and we're left with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law or ex-daughters-in-law, so to speak. And we were reminded last week that bad things happen to God's people. We were reminded that bad things happen because they come from the actions of others, like the devil. Bad things happen because he does stuff. But bad things happen because other people do stuff. Bad things to us or to others. Bad things happen because of our own consequences. We do something and that, uh, then the consequences of our actions is something bad that happens to us. Now, even though these are the causes of bad things happening to us, that doesn't tell us why. I mean, if we do, we, there's the initial kind of, the initial logical, this bad thing happened to me, why? Because so-and-so did so-and-so. But the more, the higher level picture, the big overarching picture, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we see that apart from the fact that uh, it's part of the curse, that the world, the world is cursed and so bad things happen, but God uses bad things that happen to His people for good. So even though bad things happening is the natural consequence of the choices that we make, the choices that others have made, the, the, the curse of sin that's on the world, even though that's the natural consequences, God is going to intervene in those natural consequences and bring about good. All things work together for good of those who are called according to His purpose. So even in the midst of the bad things, like deaths, sufferings, famines, trials of all kinds, we can look to our God and we can rest and trust in Him. In God's providence, Naomi suffered under God's judgment against His people, and then she suffered the curse of death in her family, and now, because of the choices of her, um, of others, she ends up with uh, two Moabite daughter-in-laws. But she loves these daughters-in-law. But we're going to see over the course of the book how this situation that they've ended up in is turned for good for both Moab and Ruth and for all of God's people. But the first thing that we see as we make our way through the passage is that we see that Naomi is keen to bless others in hard times. She's going to be blessing others in hard times. And Naomi sets up as an example in this Naomi sets up as an example, a good example, to bless others in hard times. So Naomi hears that the famine is now over in Israel and she is going to go home. She's got nothing left for her in Moab, so she's going to go home. If you look in verse 6 to 7, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. I know it says food there, but it's literally he has given them bread. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So God had relented from his judgment on Israel, and and, and, and he'd been merciful. He'd heard their prayers, something else that we saw across the pages of Judges. God would hear the prayers of His people and He would relent when they turned back to Him. And here He comes and He visits His people with bread. What a beautiful picture. Visits His people with bread. And so Naomi's sojourn outside the promised land comes to an end. It's time to go home. 
But there's still this kind of weird dynamic where they've got a kind of a family with her daughters-in-law. Even though all the men have died and they're not blood relatives, they're still living together, they're still looking out for each other. Which leads me now on a little bit of an excursion where we have to talk about the ancient Near Eastern view of family. And this is important because it sets up what else is coming in Ruth. So let's have a little history lesson for a moment on ancient Near Eastern view of family. It's constructed much differently to ours and, and you know, remnants of this is still in operation in the Near East today. So it's not something that's completely disappeared, it's just we're not used to it, it's, very, it's a very different culture to ours. So in this ancient Near Eastern context, they didn't have all the institutions that we think of, that we rely on, that form our culture, our society. They didn't have a bureaucratic government, they didn't have Medicare, they didn't have pensions, there wasn't a police force, there's no companies, there was no institutions like schools. Basically, the only unit that you could guarantee would be in every community would be family units. And all the things that we might see happening from other institutions in our society, they were all connected to the family. So everything happened with connection to the family. So providing for one another. There wasn't companies where you'd go and get a job. You would work within the family for whatever your family did. You might have been uh, sheep herders or goat herders or you might have been um, smiths, like uh, craftsmen. Uh, and, and there was variations in between. You might have grown crops or a bit, of, a bit of everything. But everything about your person was connected with your family. That's where you get physical protection. If, if there was a, a robber trying to rob you, you couldn't call up the police. You had to rely on the fact that you belonged to a family who had the power, uh, the strength to protect you. Um, yeah. So, this was in many ways good and beneficial for them as a, you know, uh, and it's a different way of thinking about uh, the construction of a society. And it meant that everybody was committed to one another because they worked for each other's benefit. There was the mutual benefit of working for one another, for, for looking out for one another, for providing for each other's needs, for building each other up for the, for the good of the family. Now, many, we've, we've lost a lot of that. We could have a, a time where we reviewed what is the pros and cons of this way of doing society as opposed to our way of doing society. But I think one of the, the, if we could just, the shortcut would be to say, one of the downsides of the way that we think about family and society is that often we devalue family in an unhelpful way. So it's a good thing that we have support structures. It's a good thing that we can call the police. It's a good thing that we have hospitals and education systems. And, you know, it's a good thing that we've got access to these things and a government that provides pensions and that kind of thing. But often, because we've got that, we have an over-reliance on it and we don't value family in the same way that they did back here. But whenever we're asking the question about should we do it this way or should we do it that way, we don't just go, this is what they did back then in the Bible times, so we should do that too. The question should be, what does God say is the best way to go? So we're not trying to emulate Jewish, ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture before Jesus. We're trying to actually do what God says is, the, is a good way to structure society. But coming back to Ruth... Um, for Moab, for Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, they are now in a precarious situation because 
their family is kind of dissipating. They don't have the system, they don't have the structure, they don't have the strength that comes with a family, especially when they, they, they're now protected. They're vulnerable women. They don't have uh, the, the, the strength of other men to, to look out for them. We know that men are on average stronger than women and that in societies, especially before the reliance on things like police forces, they had to do the protecting. Um, so usually there was a patriarch leading the family who would be succeeded by the elder son and the other sons would go out and form their own family units. And sometimes these family units could be quite large. If you read about the story of Abraham, you, you, there's one point where he goes and he gets basically the men from his family unit and there's enough there to form a, a small army to go off and defeat a, another king. So some of these groups can be quite large, but often they're a, a lot smaller and you have a bunch of families living together in a village situation and they try and build walls to protect their village. So there was safety in numbers from roving bands of thugs um, and so if you didn't want to, if you didn't belong to one of those larger family units, you had to kind of live in a village situation with your people so you can look out for one another. But here is, here is Naomi, who's not with her people, not in her own country, and she doesn't have the structure of the family unit. It's falling apart. She's got herself and her two daughters-in-law. So what's she going to do? What's she going to do? She decides she's going to go home. Three women in a share house doesn't sound so crazy to us today, but back in their day, this was a vulnerable and precarious position for them to be in. And basically, as a refugee in a foreign country, limited rights, no property, she knows the best bet is to go to her hometown. There she knows there is a, she's, the, the food's coming, uh, and she might be able to find some relatives to live with and be connected to, um, and it's going back to her own people with her the land of her own religion, her own God. And initially, it looks like they're all going to go together. But in verse 8, it says, um, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So even though she's in a precarious position already, she still wants what's best for her daughters-in-law. She's saying, for your benefit, you should go home to your mother's house. She would have been happy for them both to come with her and to help her. She's an older lady, right? She, um, she's in a very vulnerable position, but she's still trying to be self-sacrificial and say, you go and do what's best for you and your future. And that path is to go back to their mothers. And as the ex-mother-in-law, she's probably also thinking, in the, in the hierarchy of honour in their society, ex-mother-in-laws lower down the order of honour than your own mother. If you're going to look after anybody, you should go home and look after your own mother, not after me. But that's not exactly what happens. Naomi tries to send Ruth and Orpah to their respective homes, and as she does so, she begins to bless them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she's asking the Lord to bless them as they go. She's looking out for their interests. She's looking out to see if they're, that they're taken care of, and that she's asking the Lord to do that. And she's calling on Yahweh to do it, the Lord. And right now, in this part of the story, there's a little bit of a question mark over Ruth and, and Orpah's heads. You know, who do they belong to? Who is their God? They're Moabites, so maybe they follow the God Chemosh, 
but they've married Israelite husbands and they're sticking with, you know, Naomi, the Israelite. So are they following their God, Yahweh? There's a bit of a question mark. It's like this kind of gray zone, uncertainty abounds. They're in Moab, so maybe they are following Chemosh. So don't know. But nevertheless, Naomi calls on her God, the Lord, Yahweh, and she calls on him to deal kindly with them. And she asked God to reward those ladies for the way that they had been a blessing to her. They had served her, they had taken care of her, they'd stuck by her side even after the sons and the, had died and the father had died. And she wants them to be rewarded by God. And she goes on to keep praying, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. And so although it's in the Naomi's best interest to keep them by her side, she knows that the long-term security and prosperity for Naomi, for Ruth and Orpah, is for them to go home and to, to remarry. And while their prospects are not going to be as good as before they were first married, it's still better off for them, you know, prosperity-wise to and, and you know, future security-wise to, tr- to try and go home and to get remarried. And so that's what she asks for. The Lord bless you in the house of your husband. I wonder if you have that kind of mindset that Naomi does in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the, when you're going through the ringer, is this your response? Do you turn around and try and bless those around you? Do you go turn around and look out for the best interests of others when you're having a tough time? Here where safety and security hang in the balance, she's still blessing others and trying to give and trying to do what's best for them, even if it is to her own detriment. It's a noble example. And I wonder if it would be your response in the hard times. She mimics our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who, who, as he's being crucified, as he's being executed, he says, bless them, Father, for they do not know what they do. In the moments of his execution, Jesus is looking out for others and serving others and laying down his life for their benefit. A great example that we are called to follow, to lay down our lives, to bless others, even in the midst of our own extremity. Even when our needs are great, we still give because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, they all have a good cry together. This is a turning point in their story. They know they might not see each other again. But the girls are reticent. They say, they say, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So despite their condition, the girls don't want to part ways with Naomi. They want to stick with her. And so Naomi uses a ridiculous example to kind of, to prove the practicality. Look, this is is for your best interest. Go home. But so she says, look, even if I had a husband tonight and got married and had a husband tonight and I was able to still have children, which is probably not, she's probably a bit old for that, but she says, even if those two things were to happen, would you then stick around until they were old enough to marry them? She's saying, look, for your security, for your benefit, you should go home. You should return. They love each other's company, but what's the practical, what's the long-term plan here? Naomi's trying to get them to think about their future. And staying with her meant that they would be 
leaving behind leaving behind high hopes for security and legacy that comes with family in the ancient Near East. Naomi continues, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah basically decides that she's going to go home. She kisses her mother-in-law, she goes on her way. She returns to her former life in the hopes of securing a better future. And naturally, this is what you would expect, right? You would expect people to do this, to, to protest and say, no, I want to stick with you. But when push comes to shove and they see that it's actually better for them, better for their own benefit to choose this path, well, they'll choose it. And that's what Orpah does. She turns back. As a widow, she wouldn't have had much opportunities. And as a foreigner, if she was to go into Israel, she would have been an outsider. And so she turns back. It makes the best sense. But Ruth will not turn back. Ruth will not turn back. In this middle section, I've titled Oath of Allegiance. Oath of Allegiance. It's probably not something that you have had to take. I don't know. Show of hands, how many people have had to take an oath of allegiance? I've got one, I've got two, three. I've got three oaths of allegiance. Historically, we've understood the principle of being faithful and loyal to particular people. There's some people that we should have to be loyal to and we should stick with them. They should be prioritized. So, but there's competing priorities in life, right? There's different people who want our honor and respect and our devotion. So how do we prioritize this? How do we make sure that the right people get their right, you know, there's the right expectations? And one of the ways that they used to do that was they would have oaths of allegiance. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to take an oath of allegiance or an oath of fealty to a particular ruler in a particular area. And even today in the Australian Parliament, if you become a politician, before you take your seat in Parliament, you have to take an oath of allegiance. Or they've also invented this, um, this kind of a lower, a lower uh, intensity one called a, an affirmation, I think is what they call it, an affirmation of allegiance. But you're supposed to say, I do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles III, his heirs and successors, according to the law. So help me God. So, um, they would, we expect our politicians to be loyal to the nation that they are leading. To, and, and, and to serve the nation. And they do that by swearing loyalty to the leader of that nation. So, this is something that happens already. And it was similar in ancient days where you would swear oaths of loyalty to show your commitment, your loyalty to yeah, who you were with. That you weren't going to turn your back on them. You weren't going to betray them. That you were going to stick with them even when times got tough. And they would even swear oaths of loyalty allegiance to gods back in the day and they would associate their gods with geography it kind of made sense right you know if you've got a particular people or you've got a king a king only has a certain level of power over a certain area ge geographically and so they thought of their gods like that as well you know our gods must have a certain level of power over a certain area and so when a people who who, who, who worshipped a particular god went and took over a neighbouring country, 
you know, they went and took on their next door neighbors and they, uh, and they won, they would see that as their God expanding his territory and now his territory covers a greater distance. Or sometimes, like the Babylonians, they thought, oh, well, there's all these gods have control over all these different areas, and even though our God is over them all, we should probably still be nice to the gods of these other areas and keep them on our good side. So that's just to get you in that mindset of what they're thinking. And so you would swear allegiance to your God, you know, in this area, zones of different gods over different geographical areas, you know, you would swear allegiance to one God over the next. For Naomi, she expected and she understood that for Ruth and Orpah to go home would mean that they were going back to the gods of the Moabites. Because your loyalties lie with your people and your land and your place, and that would often be connected with a particular god or gods. So she's sending her daughter-in-law's homes and expecting that they will go back to their gods. She said to Ruth, your sister-in-law, She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Orpah's gone back. She's returned to the Moabites. She's gone back to Chemosh, presumably. She's saying, you need to go back to your loyalties too. But Ruth doesn't want to go. Ruth doesn't want to go. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth refuses to turn back. Ruth refuses to repent in a good way. She refuses to go back. And this is the signal that Ruth is switching her allegiances. She's making a definite choice. At the very least, she's doubling down on her loyalties with God's people, with, with Naomi and her people and her God. To go with Yahweh means to go with his people. So I want to be with your people, with your God. Which leads me and reminds me that for us as Christians, you can't have God without his people. If you are a Christian, you belong to the Lord through Jesus Christ. You can't have God without his people. It's a package deal. They come together. Christ has a bride. You can't have Christ without his bride. And there are a great many people who see the problems of the church, they see how messed it up it is, they see all the difficulties and troubles, and they go, I don't want to have anything to do with that, and they turn away. But in doing so, they're doing a whole bunch of things. One of the things they're doing is that they are rejecting those whom God has chosen. Is it for God's people to reject those whom God has chosen? as if they know better than God. God knew what he was getting when he saved his people. He knew the mess that people were going to make of the church. He knew the, the difficulty and the trouble and the sin and all the, the, the messed up stuff that has happened in the church throughout church history. But he chose those people to save them, to purify them, to purify his bride and wash her in the word, to make her beautiful, to make her precious, to make her worthy, to make her sanctified and holy and so when we choose christ we are also when we when we pursue christ when we when we go after christ and we pledge our loyalty to him we are pledging our loyalty to his people it's a package deal they go together to come into god's kingdom is to come into his church ruth is becoming loyal to naomi's people 
She's throwing in her lot with them. She's saying, I'll have your God, which means also I'll have your people. And she's giving up the security of her own people and the likelihood of prosperity with her own people. So why is Ruth doing this? We don't actually know. Ruth doesn't explain to us why she's making this choice. What we have here is just her actions. Her actions which are, I'm going with you, I'm going to be with your people, I'm going with your God. She's giving up her old identity to go with Naomi and to have this, it's uncertainty, but she loves Naomi and she wants to pursue this, even if it means her own loss. She swears an oath of allegiance. Where you die, I will die, and where you, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She's basically inviting divine retribution on herself if she leaves Naomi, or lets, leaves her alone, departs from her. She's going to go with her, be, her God's going to be her God, and her people's going to be her people. And if I depart from this, she's inviting divine retribution. This is self-sacrificial love on Ruth's part. She's committed to it. She's all in. Her life is now joined to Naomi's. Till death do they part. And I think this is because she just has a deep love for Naomi and she wants to ensure Naomi's safety. If three ladies on their own in the ancient Near East as a precarious position, how much more so would Naomi on her own be a precarious position? Ruth doesn't want to leave her and let her. She wants to go with her, to travel with her, to, pr- to look after her and care for her, even if it means leaving her own people on the way. And this is a wonderful attitude of love. Ruth is committed to helping Naomi, even if it means loss for herself. And Naomi accepts the help. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is a story of conversion. We don't often hear or think about the Old Testament as associated with conversion. Conversion being switching from one to another, so switching from one God to another God. But this is Ruth's conversion story. She's converting to the true God. Now, we don't know her motives. She may have been converting because it was the practical thing. You're going with Naomi, you go with Naomi's God. And, and in, the, in ancient times, they thought much more I don't know, pragmatically about switching religions. If the head of your household decided to switch, often that meant everybody else switched along the way. It was just, you just go with what you were told. That might have been what was happening for... Ruth, at the, to begin with, she thought, I've got to take on her God in order to go with her. But often when we, when we switch, when we, well, when we come to faith, when we're pursuing the Lord, sometimes we come with bad motives, let's say, but we find out along the way something that we, that we discover that we didn't even realize was there. Maybe you came to God because he thought he was just going to give you meaning for your life. Maybe you came to church because you wanted the friendship or the fellowship. Maybe you came because you, like, you had a theological curiosity about religious stuff. But as you come, and as you approach the Lord, as you come to join Him and become one of His people, you realize that you get all those other things, the blessings, the, the fellowship, the, the, the theological, the academic stuff, the curiosity side, 
you get all of those things, but you get something so much greater. You get the Lord himself. You get Jesus Christ himself. You get salvation, new life in Jesus Christ, rescue from your sins, rescue from eternal darkness and wrath. You get rescue out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is what it means to come to Christianity, to give up your loyalties to other God, to pledge your loyalty to God and to become one of his people. But I think for some of us, we're still sitting in the area where we are, we're like Ruth in Moab. There's the question mark over your head about who your loyalties really lie with. And I, and I wonder if we, at this moment, this morning, can have a, a little prod and ask the question, where are your loyalties really going to lie going forward? If you're faced with the choice, like Ruth was, you go, go back, turn back, or you have to go into the unknown in the precarious position, uncertainty, but you get to go with God. Which one are you going to choose? Many of us live in a great comfort and we feel like we don't need to make the choice. We can get our comfort, we can get the things that we love, we can have our security and we'll tack God on the end of that. And sometimes we don't end up in situations where we're forced to make a choice. But I want to ask you now, which choice would you make? What choice should you make this very morning to do? Should you pursue the Lord and walk with Him in faith, leaving behind the security of the world? Or are you going to turn back to what is known, to what is comfortable? Who are you going to be loyal to? Take on Yahweh as your God and take on His people as your own people. Go with Him and do not turn back to the futile ways of the world. Go with Him to the promised land. Go with Him to find eternal joy and blessedness. Now, it's going to be a a, a, a precarious journey there's uncertainty there, there's strife, there's suffering, there's trial on the way, but it is guaranteed, it is a promise that for all of his people, they will receive himself, they will receive eternal love, eternal life. As Paul sang this morning in our prayer meeting, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. In our last section, as we, as we wind down to the end of this passage, we see what happens when they get home. They go home empty-handed. Naomi went out full, she comes back empty. And the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So, Remember, this is her home community. These are the people that she would have grown up with, her her distant relatives. She's returned home after being away for many years. They left a family looking for a brighter future, a husband and a wife and two kids, and they've come home a widow, a widow with no children. But she does have Ruth, a foreigner with her. So there's, that's why the town's in a hubbub. There's this This lady who had gone out from them has come back in desperate circumstances and with this curiosity, a strange woman traveling with her, Ruth the Moabite. 
But they say to her, is this Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. That's what her name means, pleasant. But she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter, because that's what God has done for me. Her pleasantness has turned to bitterness. And so I, I think what we see here with, with Naomi is that we see here a good, a good side and a bad side to the way that she's responding to the trials. Because she's recognizing the truth. It is true that in God's sovereign plan, he has taken her out full and brought her back empty. If God didn't want that to happen, it wouldn't have happened. But she's also, her, her, her recognition of what God has done in her life and the, what he's leading her through is also turning from a recognition and, and, and it's not turning into, I'm submitting to God's plan. It's turning into bitterness to God. She's turning bitter towards the Lord. She sees God's hand in her hardships, and God's hand is there in her hardships. But Naomi is moving from recognition and, and, and reception, you know, humbling herself before the Lord. She's moving away from humbling to bitterness. And that bitterness is actually a form of arrogance and pride, as if she knows better than what God should do for her. Don't be bitter towards God. Do we know better than Him? It's good to question. We, there is nothing wrong with coming before the Lord and saying, why is this happening, Lord? Why are we facing these trials? What's going on, Lord? You know, it, this, it is good to, to question the Lord, to seek Him, to try and understand Him. It's good to go before the Lord in mourning and say, Lord, we have lost. We are, we, we're in this trial we, to, to lament what you have faced but the lament the mourning the humbling yourself before God should not proceed further into prideful demands Lord I deserve this from you or arrogant expectation that things have to be a different way than the way that God has brought them about so Naomi continues to say I went away full the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord has brought calamity upon me? So the Lord, ha the Lord has done that. But even so, her name should still be Naomi. Her name is still pleasant. And although it's difficult to see in the midst of what she's going through in these very moments, God is going to turn her name to pleasantness once again. But as we come to the end of this this section, we get a summarizing statement that prepares us for the next chapter, for what we're going to look at next week. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at this time frame, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's going to be important in our next chapter. So, what have we covered this morning? What have we covered this morning? We've covered a fair bit of ground. We, we, we talked a bit about the historical background. I, I'm, that, that took a bit of time, but... We need to get that in our mind in our, to help us understand. We see, we see Naomi, who is willing to bless others even in her time of greatest need. She's willing to be a blessing to others. She's willing to pray for their benefit. She's willing to look out for them even when she is the one who is in great need. Even as an as a example that our Lord Jesus Christ would, would fulfill. We also see this conversion story what it looks like to ditch our loyalties 
to the old ways, to the old gods, and to seek after our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to be loyal to Him, and to go with His people. But we're also reminded at the end there that God's hand is in the midst of our trials and our difficulties, and we should turn to Him in mourning and in lament and humbling ourselves before Him, but that should not turn into bitterness. Let me close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Ruth the Moabite and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have worked through history, the way that you have, uh, you have been working through your people. And we thank you, Lord, here for the lived examples of what it looks like to walk before you, to convert to you, to, to seek you. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to live righteously before you, to live humbly before you. Lord, to look out for others, to look out for the, the others' needs, even when we are in great need. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to stay loyal to you all the days of our life and not to turn away from you, the source of life. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who unites us to you, the one who brings us to you, the one who saves us. We thank you, Lord, for him, the one who gave us this great example of what it looks like to, to serve others, even when our need is great. He served us by sending him, by going to that cross. He gave up his life so that we might live. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we pray, Lord, that we might be able to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.